Some of you might remember a song that became popular in the 80s. It was titled, I'm Only Human. It was sung by a group called Human League. And some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. I can see right away on the looks. I, yeah, so, but I was a child of the 80s, and so I got exposed to all that 80s music. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use the song as an introduction to our text this morning, okay? And read you some of the lyrics. It's a secular song. It's not a Christian song. The man begins to sing in the song, and he says... And the kids are in here, so I'm not going to say everything I would normally say. You just have to understand what's going on, okay? You understand what I'm saying? Man comes on, he's so serious. Come on, baby, dry your eyes, wipe your tears, never like to see you cry. Won't you please forgive me? You already know where this is going, right? I would never try to hurt you. I just needed someone to hold me, to fill the void while you were gone to fill the space of emptiness. I'm only human. Of flesh and blood I'm made. Human, born to make mistakes. You got the idea? And he says again, this is kind of the the repeat. I'm only human, of flesh and blood I'm made. Human, born to make mistakes. I am just a man. Human. Please forgive me. Now, the really fun part of the song is when the woman sings. The woman comes on and she says, These tears I cry aren't tears of pain. They're only to hide my guilt and shame. I forgive you. Now I ask the same of you. While we were apart, I was human too. Burn! You know what I'm saying? Right? Burn! burn, burn. I don't, have to, I don't have to tell you what's going on in the song. You understand. But what message might you take away from this song? Well, one message would be don't make assumptions about why someone is crying. That was a joke. That was a joke. Uh, that could be a message that comes a point. But it's also, here's the message that I, that I think is coming through, that Being human beings, or human beings are rather helpless when it comes to the issue of sin. They say mistakes, okay, in the song, but they're talking about sin. That's how we would define it. I'm just a man. I mean, come on. We see that for this couple in this song, that being apart from each other for a period of time was just too much for them to bear. It's just too much. So rather than remain faithful to one another during this time apart, they mess around. Huh? But listen, no one should be too upset or critical because after all, <laughs> they're only human. See the message? You see the message? I mean, Thomas talked about this last, I don't even remember when. I think, oh, when he was preaching from Ephesians and he had said something about you know, secular music and how... He grew up a second, you know, obviously he still listens to the music, but be careful because music often has a message. It's not just a rambling of words, but there's a message that the author's communicating. He may not even know he's communicating it because he's lost in it. This is what he lives in or she lives in, but they're communicating a message and we hear these things and if we're not careful, we can begin to adopt these messages starting to believe that they're true. Now listen, listen, are humans, as I believe this song implies, basically powerless when it comes to sin? Are they? Well, that depends on what kind of human you are. Huh? Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, if you are a Christian human, then the answer is most definitely not. Most definitely not are you powerless when it comes to sin, as this song implies. Why? Well, as we've been learning in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 10, what is true of every Christian person is that when they exercise saving faith in Jesus Christ, they immediately, immediately die to sin. And so they, because of their spiritual union with Christ and his death to sin, 
They are no longer enslaved to sin, beloved. They have been permanently set free, emancipated from the tyrannical rule and reign of sin. They have been taken out from under the governing power of sin. They have been freed from any and all claims sin once had on them. And not only that, not only that, but having died with Christ, guess what? What did we learn? They have also risen with Christ. Risen with Christ to what? Walk in newness of life. This is our review. This is the first 10 verses of chapter 6. They have become, the Christian, the Christian human has become a real participant in Christ's resurrection life. A life, beloved, that is alive to God. Alive to God. Which is why it is not only possible, but critical for the Christian to now live for and honor God. Something that the non-Christian person, still enslaved to sin, still under its rule, cannot possibly do, nor for that matter, do they want to. Do they want to? They haven't been changed. They haven't been transformed. They're still enslaved to sin. Now today, beloved, we're going to focus in on what? Paul tells us our response should be to these incredible truths we have already learned about in verses 1 through 10 concerning who we are in Christ. Eric read from Valley of the Vision, great book, just a little book on the prayers of the Puritans. They're all kind of recorded there. He just was rehearsing some of the blessings, wonderful, of being in Christ. This, beloved, is the blessing of being in Christ, set free from sin, made alive to God. And now Paul's going to say, because of these things, I'm going to tell you now how to have a victorious life over sin. I'm going to give you practical, I'm going to tell you exactly how we do that. Are you ready for that? Are you ready? We've been, we've been learning what's true of us. Now let's see what Paul tells us to do based on what's true of us, okay? Okay. We're going to read the entire text as we've done almost, I think, every time. We're going to read it again, verses 1 through 14. Let your eyes go to the Word of God that's sitting in your laps. Verse 1, Paul says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Uh, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Verse 11, so you also, Christian, must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Verse 12, Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. 13. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. 14. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Now, I want to remind you that this section of Romans we are in, uh, concern, oh, by the way, I I forgot. It's uh, Vanessa's birthday today. Happy birthday, Vanessa. It's actually today, so I normally take a chance to do that. I want to remind you that this section of Romans we are in concerns the subject of what? This section of Romans, we... Remember, we start off in Romans with condemnation. The whole world's condemned before God. Sinners, lawbreakers, 
worthy of his wrath. Then we move to justification. I'm made right with God, not by what I do, not by my works, not by obedience to the law. It's impossible. I can't be perfectly obedient to it, but by Christ, by what he has done, by his obedience, am I made right with God? Am I declared righteous before God? It's justification. I am justified before God through faith in Christ. And now we've moved into another section. Do you remember what it is? Say it again. Right, sanctification, in case you didn't hear that. So let me remind you of the definition. Sanctification is a progressive, that means it's ongoing. It continues, we continue to add to this work. It's not a one-time event, it's an ongoing event. It begins and it continues. It increases. It's a progressive work of God and man. We'll talk about that. God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. Now let me just... I don't know if I've done this before. Let me clarify so there's no confusion. Free from sin. We're not talking about free from its power. We're already free from its power. The definition means free from its presence in our lives. Free from sin, actually sinning. That's what the idea is. So this idea of sanctification, this topic of sanctification, is becoming more like Christ. How? By becoming more and more free from sin and beginning to manifest the very righteousness of God. All right, you with me? Remember that definition, it'll help as we move through the text. Now, we have an outline. We're finally at the end, or the last point of the outline. So in your bulletins, you'll see this note. Having examined Paul's important question and explanation that we saw in the text, we're now going to conclude by looking at his exhortation. Why? So that we might understand the true foundation for our sanctification and experience ever-increasing victory over sin in our lives. How are we going to experience ever-increasing victory over sin in our lives? We're going to do it by looking at this exhortation and obeying it, believing it, following it, okay? So the, the question we found in verse 2, I'm not going to go over that, and then we saw an explanation that flowed out of that question, verses 3 through 10. Paul's explaining what it means that we died to sin, all that that means. We died to sin in Christ, alive to God in Christ, joined to him in his death and a resurrection like his. Wow, these are wonderful truths, magnificent truths, truths that are even hard to fully grasp, okay? Fully get our minds around, but we must believe what it says. We must believe what it says. And now, based on all of that truth, wonderful truth, Paul gives this exhortation, and it begins in verse 11. You with me? Here we are, Romans chapter 6. Look back at the text, verse 11. Based on what I've said to you about who you are, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Just like Christ is dead to sin and alive to God, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You're in him, you're with him, so what has happened to him has happened to you. And you must believe it to be true. Now, I think it's worth noting a couple of things. The Greek word translated consider. Look back at the text. So you also must consider. The Greek word there is in the present tense imperative. The present tense imperative. Okay, this is all that means. It means that this considering that we are to do. See, Greek words, they have, like our English words, they have different tenses, but then it communicates a different understanding of the word. They have other things too, moods and things like that. We're not going to get into all that, but it helps us understand exactly what the writer's trying to communicate. So being in the present tense imperative, an imperative is a, I'm telling you to do something. It's a command. Uh, being in that way, then this considering that we are to do is to be a continuous thing rather than just a one-time thing. The fact that it's in the present tense means do this now and continue doing this. It's not something I'm going to do in the future. I might consider that someday. No, it's not something I considered in the past and I no longer consider it. No, I'm continuing to consider the fact that I am dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You with me? So then Paul is saying, Christian, you must continuously consider yourself to be dead to sin and alive to God. Beloved, it is critical. That's, this is why I'm pointing this out. And this is why I believe Paul says it. It is critical for us, for our ongoing sanctification. Remember I told you that's an, a progressive work? 
It continues on. It's critical in light of that for us to constantly and regularly take into account, this is another way to understand consider, take into account or bear in mind or meditate on or think about or consider this thing to be true, who we actually are as a result of being in Christ or in union with him. We are, and I don't think I can say it enough. I can't say it enough. We are, as a result of being in Christ, as a result of our union with him, we are dead to sin and alive to God. Look to the person on your right. But you've got to look at each other. Look to the person next to you and say, if you're a Christian, because you can't say this if you're not a Christian, say, I am dead to sin and alive to God. Do it. Yeah? Well, but do you believe it? See, I just said to say it, but there's no power in just saying it. This is not like magic words. I'm dead to sin and alive to God. 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 Boom, now I am. No, you are. You are. You must consider it to be so. You've got to believe that. But it certainly doesn't hurt to say it. We say a lot of dumb things, bad things about ourselves on a regular basis. Things sometimes aren't even true. We should start saying the things that are true. Not that we bring them into existence by saying them. I have power in my words. This is what some faith teachers teach. I have power. if I can speak things into existence. I'm not speaking anything into existence. I am simply reciting what is true of me, what Christ has already done and accomplished on my behalf. And I'm reciting what the Word of God says is true. And then I'm believing it. I'm believing it. And beloved, when we forget these great truths, when we forget them or simply fail to believe them, then you know what happens? We run the very real risk of foolishly giving power to sin that it doesn't have. Beyond that, we actually, listen, we actually undermine our motivation to say no to sin and live for the Lord because we've forgotten who we really are. That is, those wonderfully saved by God from sin and supernaturally empowered to live for Him. That's who you are if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. That is who you are. That is who you are. One writer says, we are to recall, to ponder, to grasp, to register these truths until they are so essential to our mindset that a return to the old life is unthinkable. You understand? You come into the world not a Christian. No one's born a Christian. I hope that if you've been here any period of time, you know, you know this, right? But for some people, they, they think that's how it works. What are you? Oh, I'm a Christian. How'd that happen? Oh, my parents are Christian. What? Like that's passed on genetically or something? No, you have to become a Christian. But you come into this world a sinner, messed up, really messed up. And you, you might come to, to faith in Christ sometime, sometime down the road, right? And so you've developed all these habits and patterns and ways of thinking, right? And so now you become a Christian, and you may not know this because no one ever told you, but you died to sin, and you are alive to God in Christ Jesus. You've been united to him through faith. Sin's power over you has been broken, but you've been living so long a certain way. This is why it's so important, because the temptations are going to come, beloved. They're going to come. And you're going to be like, Oh, well, that's what I used to do. I guess I'll just do that again. No, I'm dead to sin and alive to God. It has to become so ingrained. How can I do that? That's not me anymore. That's the person I used to be, absolutely. But that's not me anymore. God has set me free from the enslavement I was once in. Not only that, he's, he's raised me again with Christ to walk in a different direction. This is who I am now. A saint in Christ. 
You see that this this retraining of the mind. Huh? We need to retrain our minds. I remember many years ago in the company I previously worked for that some of the people had a specific problem after they were promoted to a management position. And that specific problem was transitioning. Some of you might relate with this. Transitioning from being their co-worker's friends or buddy to being their co-worker's boss. Do you know what I'm talking about? Even if that's never happened to you, maybe you can understand that. And then I would... Being in my position, I would need to explain to them that their relationship with their co-workers must be different now. It must be different now because of their new position. And in light of that, they need to start acting like they're the boss rather than their buddies. Because why? Because that's what you are. Now, it might take me a while to tell you that. You know, I'm going to tell you a few times. Because, listen, you've been the buddy. You've been the co-worker. You are no longer that. You are the boss. Your relationship to them has, by nature of your position, changed. Therefore, you can no longer do the same exact things you did before. You must not. If you do, it's going to be very confusing. And it won't work well for you. I mean, it doesn't mean you can't be friendly, you can't be nice, you can't be kind. But you understand what I'm saying. A boss is not a coworker, right? You get it? So they behave differently because of their position. But sometimes it takes them a while to transition. Listen, just because they're not acting like a boss doesn't mean they aren't. These are supposed to be like so penetrating and deep. Whoa, wow, that made a lot of sense, Jeremy. No, but think about it. Think about it. Just because they're not acting like the boss doesn't mean they aren't, right? Someone gave them that position. It was given to them. It's done. On paper, they're the boss. Now they need to act like the boss. Hello, Christian. I'm dead to sin. I'm alive to God. Just because I'm not acting that way doesn't mean it's not true. It is true. Now I need to live it out. That's what, that's what we're going to see here. Woohoo! this is so good. This is so good. So because of our new position in Christ, our lives are to be different. We no longer have the relationship to sin that we once had, right? Is that right? It is right. And what we do now or how we behave must be, in, be informed, I'm just saying the same thing again, by who we truly are in Christ. Not what or who we were before, before we were saved, before we were united with Christ and as a result died to sin and were made alive to God. Now, listen, beloved, it is because that we are dead to sin and alive to God. It is because of that. And Paul says, you've got to believe it. You've got to believe it. And believing that now, because it's true, it's not like something you're making up. You've got to consider this. You've got to reckon this is true. You've got to count it to be true. Not because you want it to be true, because it is true. And because it's true, now I'm going to tell you something. Believing this to be true, now do this. It only makes sense. Verse 12, look back at your Bibles. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore. Because that's the case, because that's true, you're believing it to be true. Let not sin, therefore, Reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Now hear me. There is absolutely no point in Paul telling Christians to not let sin reign in them unless that is something that they have a tendency of doing. You with me? Listen, if this wasn't a problem for us, then why is Paul addressing it? Be like, Paul, what are you talking about? Of course not. Of course I don't let sin reign in my... Come on! I'm a Christian. (laughs) I mean, I'm goody two-shoes, man. I got it all figured out. I believed Christ, and boom, I became magic righteousness just overnight. You know, of course not. This is why Paul has to instruct us in these things, exhort us in these things. He knows what's going on. Listen, Christian, you have a tendency of letting sin reign. It's been reigning in your life. But the power has been broken. Now no longer let it reign. 
You with me? Do you know why we still have a tendency to, to let sin reign? Well, check this out. I've been saying over and over again, we're dead to sin, right? And I'm saying that because that's what the Bible says, not because I'm making it up. But while that is very true, it is also very true that sin is not dead. Have you ever heard me say that sin is dead? No, I said we died to sin. We died to sin. We were separated from its governing rule and power, its enslaving, tyrannical power. But not once have I said that sin is dead. No, beloved, unfortunately, sin is still alive and well within us. For our mortal bodies, these things, even after we have been saved, still retain sinful impulses, habits, and tendencies which will continue to plague and afflict us until the day that we die or the Lord comes back to get us until that day, until we were fully made new with glorified bodies, sinless bodies, untainted, undiseased, uninfluenced bodies. But even so, even so, listen carefully, we no longer have to now, nor should we let sin reign as king over us because sin is a defeated foe. It is a dethroned monarch. Sin no longer rules over us as it once did. Here's a way to remember this. While sin remains, that is true, it no longer reigns. Did you hear that? I borrowed that from somebody because I thought it was really good. While sin remains, for now, it no longer reigns. That's what you got to get here. Therefore, we must not give into it any longer. Huh? As one preacher says, sin is still around giving you orders. Yes, it is. Huh? Any of you know what I'm talking about? It's still around giving you orders that don't have to be obeyed. You've been set free from that master. But sometimes we foolishly do. Fools. We're fools every time we do it. We're playing the fool every time we do it. In light of who we are in Christ, we must not go on behaving as if sin does rule over us or that it must be obeyed. That's the point. We were once slaves to sin. Paul, when we get into the next section, that's exactly what he says. We were once slaves to sin, verse 17. That was true of us at one time. But we now have become slaves of God, verse 22, chapter 6. That is what's true of us now. Why? So that we might bear fruit for God. That's Romans chapter 7. That's why God set us free, that we might serve him, that we might live for him. If we weren't set free, we never could. We never would be able to. Do you hear me? Do you see what God has saved you to? To a life lived for him. Now, beloved, here's something important also for you to notice. I hope you see this in verse 12, that we aren't passive. We aren't passive when it comes to our sanctification. And by that I mean we don't just sit back and do nothing and let God do his work and in some mysterious way we just become more like Christ. Do you see that? Do you see that we're being told to do something? You let not sin therefore reign. You must do something. You must make a decision. And you're not going to make it once. You're going to have to make the decision again and again and again and again. Do you know what I'm talking about? In other words, we don't just let go and let God. 
I've seen that phrase, and I mean, I guess it can mean different things, like I'm just going to trust God. Okay, in this regard, in our sanctification, I just don't sit back and I say, well, God's going to change me. He's just going to fix me. You know, just give it enough time, and I'll become a, a, a more sanctified person. Beloved, no, that's not how it works. You must engage in this process. You must engage your will, your mind, your heart, your life through faith, believing what is true about you, and obedience, obeying what the Word of God tells you to do. And then and only then will you progressively become more and more free from sin and like Christ in your life. I, don't, I think some people, they've got the wrong idea. They're just kind of sitting back, thinking they just, if you just come into church and, and, I don't know, touch your Bible and things like that, that somehow magically you become more sanctified. That's not how it works. you got to do something. You must make a decision not to let sin reign. Through Christ, he has, God has set us free from sin, and believing that to be true, we now must choose to say no to sin's incessant and relentless lure in our lives. We must not let sin reign in our bodies to make us obey its desires, those desires that run contrary to God's desires for us. And let me remind you, let me remind you of this. Sin does not have our best interest at heart. Huh? No amens. I know you guys were saying amen in your heart. I know you were. Sin does not have our best interest at heart. Sin seeks to destroy you. Huh? I mean, as a pastor, I get to watch it over and over and over again. It's, if it weren't for the grace of God, I would have already collapsed. I get to watch people not fight the fight, but give in to sin when they don't have to. And I watch it destroy their lives. It's heartbreaking. It seeks to destroy you. It seeks to destroy you, your family, your friends. It seeks to destroy the church. Beloved, you know why churches split? You know why churches fall apart? You know why churches don't last? Sin. That's the primary reason. Unchecked sin. People letting sin reign. It is clearly the Christian's greatest enemy. Russia is not our greatest enemy. Sin. Sin is the Christian's greatest enemy. But listen to me, it is a defeated enemy. It is a defeated enemy, and we must not give this enemy any foothold in our lives. Not even a bit. Don't even crack the door. For sin is never satisfied. I know some of you know exactly now what I'm talking about. Sin is never satisfied with just having a piece of your life. It wants your entire life because it is intending on ruining all of it. That is its goal. That's its desire. This is how sin whispers. No, listen. Just this part of your life. Just this. Just take the morsel. Take the drop. No, you, you can have the rest. You can still be the, the Christian over here. It's okay. Just give me this. Is it ever satisfied with that? Then you hear, okay, thank you for giving me that. Just a little more. Just a little more. And before you know it, I, I've seen this played out so many times. For instance, it starts with pornography for, many, for a man in his home. Just, just this, that's all. But it doesn't end there. Then it leads to, that's not enough. Hey, how about we, how about we try that out for real? And beloved, I don't, I'm not going to go any further, but I cannot even begin to exp- It started here. It started so small. 
But at the end, you can't, you can't even believe what has happened to this man. You can't believe what he has done. You can't believe how ruined he is. And so goes the marriage. And the respect that the children had for the father. You think sin's our friend? That's how the... That's how the world presents it, man. That's how they present it. Hey, sin is cool, man. Sin is fun. Sin is awesome. Sin will make life worth living. I mean, you can't get through life without sinning. Come on. That's all propaganda from the enemy. You can either believe that or you cannot believe it. And if you don't believe it, then like Solomon, like Solomon, look where he ended up. He started off so well. Look where he ended up. Ruined. Ruined, beloved. Now listen, verse 13, i got to move on. It gets even more specific about what we are to do in light of who we are in Christ. Here we go. You think that was heavy? Here comes heavy, all right? Verse 13, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Do not. Hey, can we be any clearer? Do not do this. I mean, it's not like, you know, Paul's not, I think this is the heart of a pastor. Please do not do this. For your own good, do not do this. I just told you you're dead to sin. Consider that to be so. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. He's just repeating the same thing he's been saying. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Now let me point a few things out and then uh, we'll apply this. The Greek word translated members in the ESV can simply be understood here as a reference to the different parts that belong to your body. I think I mentioned this a few sermons ago. This is the same body that he refers to in verse 12. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body. Now he's, he's saying, listen, don't use the parts of your body as instruments for unrighteousness. Rather, use them for God as instruments of, right, of righteousness. And those parts, beloved, would certainly include our mind, our will, our emotions. In fact, the NIV, New, New International Version, that's exactly trying to help you understand that that's what it means, members. It, that's how it translates it. Romans chapter 6, verse 13, the NIV says, Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. Okay? You with me? So we'll talk more about this in a second. Your hands, your feet. How about your tongue, your vocal cords? It would include all of this. You, you, you. Don't use you. Mind, don't use you. As an instrument for unrighteousness any longer. Don't do it. How about, how about the pencil? How about as I write and I write stuff out? We're going to get to this. What about when I type? What about when I type? I type stuff. Like on social networking sites. I'm trying to make this real for you. You understand? I mean, parts of my body. Well, th think about it. How do I use my body? How about the decisions you make, the things you choose to say, your will? How about the things you think about? Like you're thinking about right now. Is your mind right now being used for unrighteousness? Huh? Huh? Okay. No one's answering. That's good. Um, okay, here's the other thing I want to point out very quickly. The Greek word translated instruments... Will you look back at the text, verse 13? Do you see it there? How many times does that word show up, instruments? Instruments. Twice. Thank you, sweetie. Instruments in verse 13. It's that word, that Greek word, generally, it can generally mean this. Okay, listen. It can generally mean a utensil or a tool or an instrument of any kind. But I'm gonna, I think it's worth noting, and we'll skip, the, we'll skip looking at that right now, but I'll tell you the passages so you can go back and look. I think it's worth noting that every other place that Paul uses this word, it always has the more specific military meaning of a tool used for war. And it is actually translated weapons, 
In 1st, 2nd Corinthians 6, 7, you can look it up. You'll see the word weapons, same Greek word. 2nd Corinthians 10, 4, weapons, weapons of our warfare. This is how Paul talks, man. War! That's what this is. It's a war. Weapons, same Greek word. And then in Romans 13, the very same book, he uses the exact same words, but you'll see word. You'll see it translated there, armor, armor. And actually this Greek the form of this or the base, this base word was used to describe as part of another word a fully armored Greek soldier, classically speaking. So it has that, that kind of meaning. So based on the way Paul uses the word everywhere else, I would read verse 13 this way. Do not present your members to sin as weapons for unrighteousness. That's the way I would understand this. Not just general instruments. You, listen, you can understand it that way. It's fine. It'll still come away the same way. But I, I think Paul intends, like he does everywhere else, to use it with that military-specific meaning. Weapons. Don't use it as weapons for unrighteousness, your body, parts of your body, but rather present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as weapons of righteousness. Weapons of righteousness or for righteousness. And also, I think that fits best with the Greek or not the Greek, but the context, I'll show you here in a second. Verse 12, Paul exhorts them not to let sin reign. He exhorts the Christian not to let sin reign in their mortal body. That word reign in the Greek refers to the reference of a king's rule. A king's rule. It's a king reigning. And when you think of a king, you might think of kingdoms. And what do what do kings have in their kingdoms? They have armies. And what do kings do? They fight wars. That's what kings do. That's how it would have been understood. They, they take. They occupy. They battle. And so in light of all that, I, I think that it fits best to see this as weapons. So now let me elaborate a little bit on verse 13. With all I've just said, let me read it to you like this. Listen. Christian, don't offer your bodies to this evil king sin, that he may use them as weapons of unrighteousness or wickedness for his diabolical purposes, rather as those who have been brought from death to life, as those who have been freed from sin's evil rule and reign and now are alive to God in Christ, so now offer or dedicate or present your bodies to your new king, God, that he may use them as weapons of righteousness to accomplish his good and holy purposes. That's elaborating a little bit. I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but that's kind of, I'd walk away with that understanding there. That's what's going on. That's, that's the idea. One writer says this, listen, those natural capacities and abilities that God has given us, okay, as people are weapons that must no longer be put in the service of the master from whom we have been freed. That's the point. Listen, the renunciation of our service to sin is to be followed immediately by our enlisting in the service of a new master, God. God. I'm no longer in that army. I am no longer obeying that commander. I don't have to. If I do, I'm a fool. I'm in a new army. And in that army, the commander is God. And I am now to offer or dedicate or present myself to my commander that he may use my faculties. He may use all of me as a weapon of righteousness in his mighty and holy army. That's the idea. Huh? That's the idea. Something you should think about. There is a real spiritual war that is taking place in our world. Hello. There is a real spiritual war. Beloved, it's, that's the more important war than any other war that may be going on at this time or that time. That is the most important war. And the reality is that in that war, listen, we are either, we are either a weapon in the hand of sin or we are a weapon in the hand of God. Do you see how now, does this mean, does it become more significant to you now what he's saying? 
We are being, either we are being used for wickedness or we are being used for righteousness. There is no neutrality in this war. There is no other place to hide where you don't participate. You are participating. And you are being either used as an instrument of unrighteousness or an instrument of righteousness. Now, if you're not a Christian, you're just an instrument of unrighteousness. But if you are a Christian, you now can be used as an instrument of, of righteousness, and that is what you must do. You no longer have to obey that old master. You have been set free. Sin is no longer your commander. He tells you he is. He tries to convince you he is, but he is not. Christ took care of that. And beloved, there's just no way not to take a stand in this war, huh? There is no way. There is no sidelines. And so because of that, Paul exhorts us, in light of who we are in Christ, to take a stand for God, to live in service to Him, to keep, listen, to keep saying no to sin and yes to our new King for His great glory and our great good. Now, I'm out of time, but that's how we've got to finish. We have to finish. So listen, just a little bit. Listen. You can, I want you to think about this. Well, how is it that I might use my faculties, might use my parts of my body uh, for when are these opportunities coming up? All the time they're coming up, all the time. Mouth. Huh? Mouth, voice, words. Are you using your mouth? That mouth that now belongs to God. Dedicated to and presented to Him now for righteousness. Are you speaking righteous words to your spouse, to your friends, to your co-workers, to one another? Are you speaking the word of God? Are you, do you understand what I'm saying? Or are you tearing down? Are you gossiping? Are you slandering? Are you hurting? Are you cursing? That's, that's a simple one. Man, I just heard a stupid country song today. <sighs> no, I like country music. I mean, not all of it, obviously, but, you know, this is the side. Cursing on Monday, praying on Sunday. That was the song. That was the lyrics of the song. This is a pretty popular uh, crew here, these, I don't even remember, it doesn't matter. But listen, cursing on Monday, praying on Sunday, are you kidding me? But I'm afraid that is exactly what a lot of people, what, you, God only owns you on Sunday? Are you kidding me? So listen, that's a simple one. I'm going to use my mouth to speak edification, words that are pure, that are holy. And every time I don't, I'm surrendering myself to sin as an instrument of unrighteousness. Are you with me? Are you with me? Don't do that, Christian. You're dead to sin and alive to God. Say it again. You're dead to sin and alive to God. How about Facebook? Now, Facebook is a neutral thing in the sense that it can be used either way. But do you know, as a pastor, I don't even look at Facebook anymore because I couldn't handle it. Because... I kept seeing Christians post the most awful things. And things that are unholy, things that are not good, things that are not righteous. Terrible jokes. Crude comments. Slander. Gossip. Christians! And, and, and this is what's so horrific about these, the social media stuff. It can be. Because... Now, listen, before, if I slander, if I gossip, if I go over here and I gossip to my wife about one of you over here, the only person that is impacted, if it stays there, which it doesn't usually, but it would be Allie, right? It would be Allie and me. So, but now, I can put it on the internet so the whole world can see it, or at least my whole network of friends, you know? So now my weapon is being magnified. So if you were to use that weapon as I type those words, as a weapon of righteousness, then I would be magnifying, right, my weapon of righteousness. I could, use, I could use Facebook. I could use Twitter. I could use those social networks to really make an impact. Yes, I could. But like a fool, 
and I allow my fingers and my mind to be used as a weapon of unrighteousness. I'm serving the devil when I do that. Don't do that. Okay? Don't do that. All right, we're good there. But you keep thinking. You keep thinking about that. You keep thinking. By the way, just a real pro I know, Rod. Listen, how about, a, how about, this one should be obvious, right? But I can use my body. You know, Paul says in Romans 12, we are to present our bodies. Listen, turn there real quick. Turn there. Listen to this. He can say this kind of stuff because of what he's already said in Romans 6. He says in Romans chapter 12, just a couple chapters over, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, Christians, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable God, which is your spiritual worship. That's what you are to do now. You have a new king, a new master. Now offer yourselves up to his service. Can you do it? Yes, you can. You and I can now, being set free from sin. The Holy Spirit dwells inside of us, participating in the resurrection of life of Christ. We are alive to God. We are empowered now to live for him. But we got to do it. We got to do it. You got to do it. You have to make the decision. All right, real quick. Ooh. I'm going to deal with this real quick. 14, for sin... He then says, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. 14 follows 13. So the, pray, the phrase, for sin will have no dominion over you, is explaining something he just said in 13 and 12 because they're connected. So this is why this is true because sin will have no dominion over you. The New American Standard Bible translates that phrase, for sin will not be master over you. Master over you. I think that's a better translation. Dominion, master. Sin will not be lord over you. And what well, all this is saying is, Paul, this is not a command. Paul is saying, you better not let sin be Lord. Not here. What he's doing here is he's giving them an assurance that will encourage them that they can do exactly what he just told them to do because sin will never, ever again be your master. It won't. It cannot be. You may, you may give it power it doesn't have. You may play the fool because we all do. But it can never have the dominion it had over you before. One writer says this. Listen. These words are to be understood as a promise that is valid for every believer at the present time. Sin shall certainly not be your Lord. That's the word he's actually using there. Lord, master. Same word. It shall certainly not be your Lord. Not now or ever. That's the point. It's, an, it's a promise. That's why you can do these things. And then he adds this. I like this. To put a stop to the reign of sin. Listen, I don't know why. Is this, you should pop this up. I want you to see it. Thank you. To put a stop to the reign of sin. To stop engaging in those sins that have too often become so habitual that we cannot imagine not doing them. That's a daunting responsibility. That's, I don't know, Jeremy. I don't know if I can break free from this. We feel that we must fail. Do you understand what the writer's saying? Some, sometimes we've been, in, we've been sinning so long in a particular way, we don't think we can break free from it. But Paul then reminds us of just what we have become in Jesus Christ. Dead to sin, alive to God. There has already taken place in the life of the believer a change of lordship. And it is in the assurance of the continuance of this state that the believer can go forth boldly and confidently to wage war against sin. It's a continual reminder that, no, I have a new Lord now. That's the one I'm under. That's the one working inside of me. I can, I must, I will say no to sin. By the way, he says confidently wage war against sin. He means our sin. I've said this a million times. Maybe not, I'm exaggerating. But if Christians would spend a little more time waging war against their own sin and instead of everybody else's, wow, we'd be a lot better off. I'm just telling you. I'm not saying there's, there is a place to exhort one another. There is. We're told to. There is a place to encourage, to edify, to teach, to instruct. There is. We must do that in love. But it would be really good if, if we were putting them as much time right here. 
looking to ourselves and saying, God, help me. Reveal to me any way that is wrong with you so that I might crush it, that I might really trust in what you've already done. It's been crushed so that I might say no to it, that I might repent and that I might begin to walk the opposite direction in righteousness. Boy, if we did that, if we spend some time doing that, if we really wage war against our sin, and we have the power to do it, beloved, because we have a new commander. All right, then finally, there's this interesting phrase in verse 14. I'm going to close out here. Since you are not under law, but under grace. Let me explain the logic of 14. It goes like this. Why does Paul say that we will never come under the dominion of sin again? Well, because we are not under law, but under grace. That's the reason. Now, the subject of not being under the law is dealt with more in the verses that follow, especially chapter 7. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to postpone dealing with that part of the phrase, okay? Because you might be saying, what does it mean, not under the law? And that might strike you as very odd. But just know, it's because we're not under the law but under grace that sin no longer has dominion or never will over us. Just know that. Many Christians I know are confused about their relationship to the law of God. But as I said, it is, being, it is not being under the law, but rather being under the power of God's grace, being under its rule that assures us that sin will never be our master. So does not being under the law mean that the Christian is free to sin? Of course not. And that's exactly what Paul deals with in the next verse, verse 15. So, right, he, he says this statement, and of course, what are you saying, Paul? I guess the law doesn't apply to us anymore. We can just do whatever we want? No, of course not. Verse 15, look at your Bibles. Look, look right there. What then, Paul says, are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? Of course not. By no means. That's ridiculous. And then he'll get into that, but we're going to get to that. Okay? For now, I just want to point something out, and you can close with this thought. Think about this with me. Now, I hope, hopefully, I've given you quite a bit to think about. Have I? Yes. Have I? Yes. By the way, start thinking about Easter because we're going to be preaching that gospel. And praying for people to come to Christ. So bring all of your lost friends and slave to sin that God might set them free. Be thinking about that now. Let me just point this out as I close. At the beginning of this section, this is so cool. At the beginning of this section, verse 1 of Romans 6, Paul asks this question. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Notice how he ends this section. He says, no, rather, it is because we're under God's grace that sin has been overcome. People misunderstand grace. If you think grace means you'll just do whatever you want, you'll just sin like a crazy person, there's no change in your life, then you've misunderstood grace, God's grace. God's grace is brought in to set you free from sin and empower you to live for him. We owe everything to God's grace, beloved. And because of his grace, we do not have to be hopeless when it comes to sin, but rather by his grace, we can now truly live for God and experience all the blessings that that kind of life brings. Let's pray. Father, your word is mighty and powerful. And we are weak and foolish. Father, help us. Help us to take it. Help us to understand it. Help us to believe it. Help us to trust in it. Father, help us to obey. You have, you have done everything for us. And you continue to work in and through us. But Father, it's clear we must participate. We have to obey. We have to trust your word. We have to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. And then we have to make a decision, not once, but over and over and over again, because sin continues, continues to plague us, tempt us, afflict us, continues. We don't even, we don't just deal with wrestling with the, those own remnants of sin that remain in us, but then we deal with the world who's completely given itself to sin. We got that to deal with too. Then we got friends and family that are still enslaved to sin, so all of their thinking, all of their logic is horrific. 
terrible. Then we go to, we go to secular schools and colleges where, they, where they, they're still enslaved to sin, many of these teachers and professors. So what are they going to teach us? Good, solid wisdom? No. So we get fed all that nonsense. Father, boy, do we need your help. How we need your grace, Father. Help us, I plead. Me and every believer in here. Father, help us. Help us. Empower us now, Father, to believe these truths and begin to walk in light of them, to make that decision, to say no to sin, that I am no longer going to surrender myself to sin as an instrument of unrighteousness, of wickedness. I'm not going to do it. And Father, we, we will. You know this already. And that's why you've given this mechanism of confession and repentance. We have forgiveness in Christ. We confess it. We recognize it as what it is, evil, terrible, stupidity, all of those things. We repent, we turn, we look back to you, we put our faith in Jesus Christ, and we go at it again. Father, help us. And as that process continues in our life, we begin to have victory. We begin to win sometimes. We begin to see, I don't have to do that anymore. I'm not doing that anymore. Glory be to God. And then, Father, you're so kind, you show us all the other places where we're all messed up. But that's kindness. Because you want us no longer to walk that way because it'll ruin us. It'll ruin our friends, our family, our church. It'll ruin us. And you love us. And that's not what you want for us. Father, help us. We trust in you, your power. Your might, your wisdom, Father, help us to trust in your holy word. It is in Christ's name, the one, the one who has saved us, saved us from sin. It's in his name we pray. Amen.